Bible, go ahead and turn it to Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. That's, that's good for the floor. That's my fault, sorry. Um, so we're um, uh, going through the gospel of Mark, and uh, for some people as agonizingly slowly, for other people at a neck-whipping pace. It just depends on your perspective. And uh, now we're in chapter 11. So I'm going to read verse— 11, chap- verse, chapter 11, verse 27 through 12. If you have a pew Bible, sorry, it's 1574. Pew Bible is page 1574. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. Who gave you authority to do this? Now, let me stop here. If you weren't here last, last week— Jesus just flipped over tables and turned everybody out of the temple and closed up shop for all the people making money in, in, in the religious temple, okay? So that's why these guys are mad, and they're asking by what authority he, he has a right to do that. That's what's going on if you don't remember what happened last week or weren't here. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? From men, tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say for men, well, they feared the, that the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus answered, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him out and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Another nice happy passage towards the end of Mark's gospel. Now, in the ancient world, people built with a lot of stuff, okay? They built with wood, they built with plaster, they built with all kinds of things. But if you could, and if you could afford it, and if you could have the people to work on it, people like to build with cut stone. And you, for example, when the temple was built, the temple was all built with cut stone and cedar, right? Because cedar lasts pretty much forever, particularly in a dry climate, right? And stone lasts longer than that, right? And so there was this really long and arduous process of just like cutting stone. I mean, can you imagine— living three or four thousand years ago, and your job is to cut stone? Does that sound fun? Does it sound fun to me? 
right? And it still had to be cut well because the, uh, the way that you put stuff together wasn't really that advanced. I mean, they didn't put rebar in the middle of the stones like we do with poured concrete now. So you had to cut it right. And the one stone that had to be cut absolutely right was called the chief cornerstone or the head cornerstone. And that was a stone that lined up the whole building. Its angles had to be perfect because it went down first. And it laid out everything that was going to be built after it. Okay? And so um, people would—so you had to go—you had to quarry it. You had to cut it. I'm not as tough as I used to be. And if, if it was good enough, right, you would say, okay, we're going to put this in the building. If it, if it didn't cut well, and you could imagine with kind of rudimentary instruments, you could have a lot of these that didn't turn out right. Well, you couldn't put them in the building, or at least you couldn't put them in the main part of the building, and you certainly couldn't use them as the main stone. So they got thrown in a pile. They got used in somebody's fence. You know what I'm saying? And that, those would be stones that would condemned stones or rejected stones, right? Now, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, a poet in Israel who was either a king or a general wrote Psalm 118. And the whole theme of Psalm 118 is that there is a person who everybody seems to be standing against him. Everybody seems to be closing in around him. And the reason everybody's closing in around him is because he believes in and he follows God's ways. And that has not curried him a lot of favor with his surrounding neighbors nationally. And they're coming in on him, and there are all kinds of enemies. He can't even keep track of them all. And he basically comes to the point where he's like, listen, I either got to start acting really pragmatically and handling these things in a kind of— I'm going to need to start acting like them. Or I need to believe God and see what happens. And he decides to trust God. And when he, when he writes Psalm 118, it's on the backside where God has delivered him. And one of the passages in that—hold on, sorry, I pushed the wrong button. One of the passages in Psalm 118 is this one. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected— has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That comes at the end of the psalm, where he basically says, basically his army went out and fought all these different enemies, and they won against all kinds of crazy odds. And so now they've come back. They were the ones who were definitely going to die, and somehow they were victorious. And so the stone that the builders had rejected, the, the people that were definitely going to lose. Somehow God turned it around, and they became the winners. And so he says, we, because he wasn't the only one out to, to fight, right? He says, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made, meaning this victorious day where we who were rejected triumphed. God made this happen. And so all there is left for us to do is to be happy about it. So all we, that's all there is left for us to do. Just be glad. And that's the verse that Jesus goes to to define everything that's about to happen to him and his identity and what God is doing and bringing all of this whole thing that's happening in Mark's gospel together into one thing. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or has become the capstone. If you commit that one sentence to your head, you can take away most everything that's in this section of Mark's gospel. The stone that the builders rejected, that one has become the capstone. The timing was a little off on that one. 
what I want to do for the next couple of minutes, I want to go through the four things that flow out of that verse that are basically what's under it. And that are these, these, four, these four things. One, that there is a human judgment that God reverses. Two, that there is a judgment of God. That, that God doesn't just reverse the decision of the judges, but he actually condemns the judges. The third is that God reveals the identity of that stone. What is the stone the builders rejected that has become the capstone? That's important because that stone is the basic basis for everything God is doing. The capstone is the stone on which everything finds its meaning. And then lastly, if God has laid a capstone, that means God is building something. What is God building? And there will be uneven time spent on each point. So the, the first one is that God reverses the judgment of humans. And that goes back a long way. This idea that God likes to cause the triumph of the weak and the fragile is an idea that runs through all of the Bible. The fact that God often finds himself standing against the majority, those in political power or financial power, or those in religious power, is really common throughout the Bible. And it's not that God is, um, is officially simply against authority, because all through the Bible, God institutes authorities, right? All through the Bible, God institutes authorities. There's a couple that he's against. For example, in 1 Samuel, when the people asked for a king, he said, I never wanted you to have a king. Remember that? But he had already instituted the authority of Moses as the prophet, the priests, and the elders who were going to be the judges of issues. So he had instituted three authorities, but there was one they didn't want because the king would always— he knew the king would usurp his place. But all through the Bible, God is for right authorities. So God is not categorically against authorities. So why, why this theme, and why does Jesus come to this? And, and, this is, and this is why. Because when authorities are wrong, human beings tend to go along with them. That's the issue. That when the majority is wrong, it costs us something to go against that. And so most people don't. When the political power or the financial power of the company is wrong, it costs us something to go against that, and so we don't. And when the religious power, at times in cultures where religions have any power, goes against what God explicitly told them to do, it costs something for the average unempowered person to go against it, and so we don't. And it's important for all of us to recognize that God does not feel that way. The fact that the majority feels a certain way or believes a certain thing or does a certain thing has no bearing on how God feels, thinks, and acts about that thing. We, the human race can be in 100% agreement that something is fantastic or terrible that has no bearing on how God feels about it. None. It, it, do, it doesn't—he doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't stay up one minute longer from sleep. If he, if he did sleep, there's no stress. There's no issue for him. He doesn't have to talk to a therapist, even if everybody disagrees with him and stigmatizes him because they disagree with, he disagrees with them. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter. He loves what's good, true, and beautiful. He knows exactly what is good, true, and beautiful. And everybody, everywhere, at every time, in every way can disagree. He doesn't give a rip. And he is seeking a people that feels that, that feels that way. He's looking for a people that act that way. He's looking for a people that, 
does not mind to be in a stigmatized minority. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist of the 20th century, got this right when he was interpreting Mark's gospel. He said in, in, in Britain in his day, of course, Britain was a Christian country, right? And he said, I don't know why my fellow Britons think that Christianity is this majority religion. Jesus never intended it to be a majority religion. He never thought it would be a majority religion. He, he talked as though the people of God would always be a stigmatized and oppressed minority. He always talked like that. He always talked like the Christian class would be a prophetic class. So a group of people telling the truth and living the truth in a sacrificial way being ignored by most. And that's exactly what Jesus is, right? He's the first who becomes last. He's the one who needs, who, who could have all the servants. He comes and he serves everybody. He is the stone the builders, everybody in power, rejects but knowing that God would make him the cornerstone. And I think, that, I think that we need to recognize as a people a couple of things about this. We have to not be enchanted by power. We need to recognize there are going to be times we're going to have to bang on the doors of power and say, this is not right. Not because our other interest group tells us that's right, and we can escape the stigmatism of the minority by seeking some other self-serving minority that will tell us we're fantastic. But really because it's not right. And God has been really clear about this, and this is who we are, and this is what it means to be part of a minority community. And one of the things we also have to recognize as a church is there are certain sociological things we have to do if we're a minority community, I cannot tell—okay, so I was in the South, right? In the South, lots of people still consider America a Christian nation. Like, it, like it's, if you are a public Christian where I last pastored, it was not—you were more likely to succeed. You were not stigmatized at all. It was still a good thing to be publicly Christian, okay? There are a lot of places in America where that's not true. It's not true. And— one of the things that I think we need, to, we need to realize is that when you, when you recognize that we aren't in the majority, when you recognize that we are swimming upstream culturally, any community that recognizes that about itself has to do certain things, or it will be overwhelmed by the majority culture. And you see that in almost any minority culture among any group of humans where they're the minority and they have remained— whether it was the Bulgarian minority, whether it is the Jewish minority in many places. There are, there are lots of places where you have a vibrant minority community that maintains their identity in the midst of a majority community because they do certain things. For some of them, it's language. They teach all their kids their native language first. For some of them, it's, it's foods, it's gatherings, it's ways of talking, it's sub-languages. All, there's all kinds of ways. They're inculcated values through different forms in different places. And because they recognize if we don't have a mechanism by which we become strong as a minority community, we will just be overwhelmed. And the reality is, is that the church, the, the believers in Jesus in the world, we are not a majority community. Can we agree on that? We're not a majority community. So if we're going to be realistic, we are going to have to start acting like we know that. For example, we had this discussion, this argument. I'm sorry, I'm going to pick on you for a minute, and I apologize for doing that. Partly, but obviously I'm going to do it, so. Um, we had this argument in 
staff meeting about why fairly few people go to adult Bible fellowships given the congregation that comes to church. And there were some good ideas about that. Like, you know, we just got 40 minutes of teaching, and then I'm going to go and get another hour. Like, that's a lot of teaching, and I don't have any time to process. So maybe I want to go out with my friends and talk about the sermon. Maybe there's some people that aren't going to ABS, but they talk about the sermon for an hour after. That's, that should be as good. Or some people were like, I'm not sure we like them. And there, was all, there were all kinds of, I think, in-house. So we as a staff have to work with those issues. But here's one of the issues. At, at one point, I was just like, listen, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Because I started going to church as a teenager in New York where it was, to be a Christian was to be stigmatized. So I didn't have a choice. I knew from day one I needed as much instruction as I could possibly get in the Bible, as long as I could get it, because I was going to go across the street to my exceedingly secular university, and I was going to get pressured all week to acquiesce to a majority community, and I just knew I needed it. I knew, and so I read my Bible for an hour every single day. I went to Sunday school every single week. I went to two small groups, and I went to church every week. Not because the preaching was even good. I'll get to that a little bit later. But because I knew I needed it, because I knew I existed in a stigmatized minority community that if we did not become strong together, we could not be the prophetic voices we were made to be. We could not become the capstone. And so I submit that to you for your inspection. Point two. In Mark 12, where this is used, it is, it is talking about God judging the human builders. So imagine a courtroom in which a, a, a judge is pronouncing a sentence on a, an innocent defendant, okay? And he's like, you're gonna, you, you killed the guy. He, he's been framed for something. And that, you know, everybody's in on it except him. And, he, and the judge is saying, you are going to jail forever, basically. And somebody comes in, and, he, and, he, and they, they have the power to stop the proceedings, right? So let's just say the state attorney comes in with a SWAT team, right? And th they're hauling the kid away, right? And this, the state attorney comes in with a SWAT team, and he goes, stop! And they go over, and they unchain the kid, Right? And they, they send him out, and they're like, you're totally free to go. And, everybody, and everybody's like, whoa, what just happened? And then he, go, and he turns to the judge, and he points to the judge, and he goes, arrest him. And the SWAT team climbs over the judge's bench, throws the guy down, takes his robe off, cuffs him, and carries him out. They, and they arrest the—they address the prosecuting guy. They arrest some people from the jury. They arrest the whole gamut of corruption, and they throw them all in jail. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying— you guys are making a judgment about me, and you need to know that that judgment is wrong. And God is going to reverse your judgment. He's saying more than that. That's why they were so angry at the end of the parable. He said, not only is God going to reverse your judgment about me, but God is going to reverse your judgment about you. Let me tell you a story. Right? Now, Here's what I think we need to, to face when we look at this story. Um, friends, we are going to have to get comfortable with the doctrine of God's judgment. Here's what I think. I think most of us just act generally uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell and the doctrine of God's judgment. And we, and we just, if, if we're, even if we're doctrinally sound, we just go kind of agnostic about it. Listen, I believe God is good, and I just believe whatever happens in the end is going to be just, and 
I don't really get it, but I just leave that alone. But God's love, I, oh, that's fantastic. I'm ready to worship. I, um, I was talking with, a, with a, a younger person this week who is very Christian, loves Jesus, very orthodox, loves her Bible. And, we were, and, and I simply asked her the question, what's the gospel? Okay, what's the gospel? And she dove right in with, you can see it on her face, with passion about God's love. She's like, here's the gospel. The gospel is that God loves us so much that he sent his son He's, he's drawing us to himself. He lo- and then about 40 seconds into that, she started talking about Jesus' death, and she, I, I think it occurred to her that she was going to have to say something about God's judgment, or like why somebody had to die. And so she just said, you know, because God is just, you know, then Jesus died, and he showed his love for us, and he rose from the dead, and, he, and it was actually great. It was a great answer, because I've gotten some terrible answers to that question, and it was actually a fantastic answer. But it was 97% Jesus loves you, and 3%, God is a just judge. He, he condemns evil. He destroys unrepentant, calcitrant wickedness. And that is amazing about him. I mean, when was the last time you were like, my God is a judge of unrepentant unrighteousness. When it comes time to judge, he does. And it is amazing that he does that. Amazing that he does that. But when we watch a movie where the hero finally kills some dude at the end who really had it coming, we go, Down right, Hans, you go ahead and fall 37 stories, right? That's die hard for those of you who aren't 30. <laughs> right? Almost every one of us know of some situation in which some bad guy got condemned somehow, whether in literature or in film or in real life news stories, and we go, that's right. A child muster gets sentenced, something happens, and we go, justice was done. That's, that's good. That, that is a proper human issue, but we have a really hard time with it, right? Why? And the reason is, we don't really believe, we don't, I mean, we don't really believe that God's, what God says about his justice is right. See, if you go and you read, for example, the Psalms, in the ancient world, so the, the early Jews, they didn't have any problem with this idea at all. The idea that God would fight with them against their enemies. They didn't have any hang up about that at all. It is culturally specific to the late Western world. Why? And we assume it's because the ancient world was actually shabby thinkers. I don't think so. I think it's because we're shabby thinkers. For, for example, we—I'm sorry, that was for the story I told it. One of the things—I think there's two main reasons why this happened. But, one, but note, note this in this verse. I'm sorry, I didn't say this right. Remember what the verse says? The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. Then what comes right after that? The Lord has done this in what? It is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118 is about God's judgment, that God slaughtered the enemies of the people of God who unrepentantly hated what God stood for. He executed his judgment in real time on real people who had real families. And the response of the psalmist is, God did this, it's, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Right? I think there's two reasons we have a problem with this. The first is, where am I? 
that be, um, we, what we believe is if we buy into the glory of God's judgment, we will start to buy into the glory of our judgment. And therefore, to love the fact that God is a righteous judge and condemner of unrepentant unrighteousness, we believe that that's going to create religious bigotry and self-righteousness. Okay? That's what we believe. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that in the story Jesus tells, he tells it from a certain perspective. What he says is, he says, now let me tell you what it's like. It's like a man who is fairly wealthy, and he decides to plant a vineyard. He said he plants all—the whole vineyard first. So he plants hundreds of vines for grapes that are going to be productive. Then he puts a wall around the whole thing, so defending it is actually pretty easy. He digs the wine press out, which is the hardest thing to get set in the whole system. He does that for the tenants. And then he actually builds a tower. So that keeping track of everything, making sure the subtenants are working, all that kind of stuff is easy. He actually does a fantastic job of setting up the vineyard, right? Then he sends a servant to get some of the produce, because that was the gig, right? You got to run the vineyard, and you gave some of the produce to the owner. Now, it says some of the produce. The assumption in the passage is that what the guy sends for is totally reasonable. It's totally reasonable. He has a right to it. He built it. It's his land. He did everything to make sure it was productive. All they had to do was prune some stuff and go pick it. It's pretty much it. He did everything else. And so he comes and he wants some of the fruit. And they're like, you're not going to have our fruit. But the, the master is right and reasonable. And then the forbearance, right? He sends the guy, they beat him up. Send him away. Sends more guys. I mean, then they kill some. I mean, there's, there's this place where Jesus says, he sends many others. And then he just categorizes them generally. There are those that were physically abused. There were those that were killed. There were lots of them. Right? And then he says, he had one, a son whom he loved. Now think about that. That's forbearance, right? Now you would say, well, in the story, isn't it stupidity that he would send his son? Maybe. Maybe. I don't— that's not the point. The point is the forbearance of the owner. That's the point. And then the thing that comes across is just how uncracked the hardness is of these tenants. You remember what they say? They've already kept the whole harvest, okay? So it's the master's vineyard. They already kept the whole harvest. Now they see this and they go, wait a second, wait a second. If we kill this guy, we'll get the vineyard too. Like, it wasn't just bad enough that they, they raised a harvest of grapes on somebody else's vineyard, wouldn't pay them anything. But beyond that, they're like, wait a second, there's a new opportunity to be wicked here. We could essentially steal the vineyard. And then they, so they seize the son, they kill him. Then what does it say they did? It says they just threw him out of the vineyard. They take his dead body and they just throw it over the wall like a piece of garbage. And then how does Jesus end the story? He doesn't even tell him how it ends. He goes, what do you think's going to happen? Right? What do you think's going to happen? If you were watching that movie, who would you be cheering for? You would be waiting for the horses to ride in. Right? That, you see, Jesus' assumption is that's what it's really like. See, our problem with the doctrine of judgment is we don't think that's what it's really like. We don't think we're these tenants. That's the issue. 
It is a fundamental misunderstanding of what we really are. Because we don't have a very deep doctrine of depravity and human sinfulness, the doctrine of judgment is impossible to accept. But let me tell you what else is impossible to accept. The glory of Jesus' redemption of your life. Because your devouring of the glory of the beauty of Jesus saving you is proportional to what you really think you were before and still are in the midst of God giving you the grace of salvation and loving you. Remember, there's a place, uh, Luke 7, remember? Prostitute comes, crying on Jesus' feet, right? Remember what Jesus says? He turns to the Pharisee guy who's judging her, and he goes, listen, she has been forgiven of a lot. So look what she does. She cries on my feet. She hugs my feet wipes it with her hair. Why? Because she has some sense of how wicked she is. And so this is her response. Beauty, like love, joy, enjoyment of God's redemption. And that it will always be proportional to what you think you were before and what you think you are now. And if you don't think you're a tenant in this story, not only can you not glory in the doctrine of the judgment of God, which is an amazing truth about our God, but you can't even really deeply accept and enjoy and love and be motivated by the redemption of Jesus to save you. That's why our sheening over on the doctrine of depravity is killing our churches. It's killing our churches. The idea that you're good enough and sweet enough and gosh darn it, people like you, and that you are inherently horrifyingly self-righteous and self-motivated, entirely interested in the little kingdom that you're building for yourself, the less we believe that, the more self-righteous we become. The doctrine of God's judgment and what's beneath it, the doctrine of depravity, is the only thing that can save us from religious bigotry and religious self-righteousness. If we take our faith seriously, Another thing is this. There's this verse in Romans 12 that says this. This is about God's judgment. And he's writing to people who, uh, who, who may be interested in taking revenge. Now, Paul is eventually going to get beheaded in the city of Rome. Peter got killed in Rome. The Romans are killing Christians. He writes a letter to the Romans, and he says this. this is, he's getting to the end of the book. This is one of the last things he says. He says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written— it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If, he's do, if you do this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right? Now think about that. What he's saying is, the reason why you cannot take revenge against people who are slaughtering your friends and relatives and brothers and sisters in the faith is this reason. Whatever judgment is rightly deserved in this world, only God can do that well. Only God can do that well. Only God can exert condemnation and judgment, and not become so soiled by it himself that he goes way beyond, or way under, or way to the side. Only he can do what's actually appropriate and proportional. And you see what I'm saying? He's saying, therefore, what your job is, is to back the heck up 
to forgive and to offer friendship and love and any redemptive thing you can offer. Because if you're successful, if you're successful, then they're just you. You deserve condemnation. You came to grace. Your wickedness in the end because of God wasn't unrepentant. You, there, there was a turning, and so they're in the same boat you're in. And if they don't, then God will take care of their judgment, and the, actually the grace that you show them will actually increase their condemnation. So if you show real love, not pretense love, to your enemy, you cannot not win. Because either they'll be redeemed, or all of your love will count for something in the addition to their condemnation. Now, you might go, whoa, that sounds like a bunch of fake love is going to happen. Let me tell you a quick story about this, and then we'll, we'll end with point two, and we'll do something about these other points another time. Um, in, um, in May of 2003, I got my first grown-up job to become a preaching pastor in Panama City, Florida. Um, Alexi was nine months pregnant. Um, my daughter was to be—my first child, which I didn't know was a daughter, was to be born in seven days. And I was fly fishing at the, in the Blue River in southwest Wisconsin, a little bit on the other side of Richland Center. Nice little day of fly fishing, beautiful Wisconsin spring day, right? And uh, I got in my car, and we had those old Nokia blue phones. Remember those? And um, I looked at my phone, and it said 13 messages. And— I, pr I pretty much knew somebody was dead, right? In fact, the first thought that occurred to me was both my parents had died. And so I, we finally, and of course, it's the Blue River. We were not in cell range in 2003. And so finally we get back close enough, and um, I sort of get my messages, and it's a neighbor um, who lives just down the street, a good friend of my dad's named Dean Clark, and he had just left message after message, Nick, you need to call home as soon as you get this. Nick, you need to call home as soon as you get this. And um, so I finally, and I turn, I turn to my friend Eric, Eric Hesse, who's, who pastors in Richland Center now. And he'll preach here, hopefully this year. And I said, I think one or both of my parents has died. And so I finally got a hold of Dean, and what had happened was um, my dad had been killed. Not my mom, just my dad. And um, here's what came to light as we found out what happened. Um, my dad was one of these guys that— if he wasn't so humble, he'd make you sick. He's basically my polar opposite in certain ways. Um, but he was just a really understated guy, extremely moral, um, really believed in deferentiality. Like, he would get mad at me for being late, and he wouldn't say, you should be on time. He'd say, think about the other people who had to wait for you. You know, he was the kind of guy that if he was walking in a park, he would pick the garbage up in other people's campsites. He was that sort of guy. In fact, at his funeral, we said you could, you could summarize Ed's life by saying he was the kind of guy who believed the world should be left better than when you found it. He's that sort of fellow. In fact, when he was actually struck and killed driving, he was driving 55 miles an hour with his seatbelt on, driving back home from visiting his 93-year-old mother in a nursing home, basically minding his own business. Meanwhile, another young gentleman who was 19 years old, was, um, who already had a record with the law, was passing a tractor trailer on a double yellow line on a curve. My dad was going 55. He was going somewhere between 75 and 1,000 miles an hour. And um, it's okay to laugh. And he just, he hit my dad dead on, head on. My dad was killed instantly, and he survived. 
And um, so all, these, all my family came up from Erie, Pennsylvania, my Italian family. And you need, to, you need to understand that there are some nice cities, like Madison's kind of a nice city, because it's not really a city. It's just a big, sprawling suburb, you know? Um, can I make fun of Madison? Is that okay? I think we're a little pretentious about the city, don't you? Um, but there are other cities that are like, you know, in the Rust Belt, like Erie, that are, you know, the old steel communities, and they're imploding. You know, it's kind of like Buffalo. You can get anywhere in 20 minutes because there's no people left, but there's infrastructure for a million, you know? Um, and uh, so I, I have these cousins from Erie that are really rough guys, okay? Like, you do not want to hear the way they talk about gay people or black people. Like, it's terrible, okay? They're, they're really rough. They're, they're really great with their families, but they just don't get the whole—they've never been to a public university and been taught about the way you're supposed to talk about certain things. And um, they fought their whole lives. We sat around one time, and um, we were playing video games, and we were telling stories about getting in fights. And we realized that I was telling all these stories about how I escaped getting in fights as a kid and how they got in lots of fights. Um, and so we got in the car when we were getting ready to do my dad's funeral. And my cousin—my cousin, I shouldn't say who because of what I'm about to say— Turned to me and he said, he said, Nick, he said, we loved Uncle Ed. We've never met anybody like Uncle Ed except for Grandpa Nicola on my mom's side. And he said, he said, in Erie, the way we handle this, we'd go find this guy, we'd beat him to death. He's like, we'll do that for you. And he was, listen, he was dead serious. I don't know if he'd ever done it before, but he was dead serious. And he looked at me, he said, listen, you don't even have to be involved. I know you get college, you know, you're be, whatever. He's like, we'll just do it for you. Because we, we just loved Uncle Ed. And I, I was like, um, I don't think we should do that. <laughs> but listen, listen, it was tempting, okay? I like to think I'm a good man. It was tempting. Um, and one of the reasons I knew the answer had to be no was because I had read Romans 12, and I believe it. So the second temptation is this, to offer fake love, hoping that this person will never believe and face the judgment of God. That's temptation number two. That's just as bad. That's worse, probably. To say, I'll do, I'll go through all the motions of being kind and whatever, essentially so people will think well of me, but really so I'm hoping this guy will really get his. Um, but that's not what Romans 12 says. Romans 12 doesn't say, offer fake love, hoping these people will never come to mercy so they can be destroyed. That's not what it says. It says, give them food, love them, invite them, show love, show that you have the capacity to watch a family member be murdered and then show love to that person. That is the gospel. That is why the, the owner sent many others to the tenants. Because he wanted them to go, you know what? You're right, let's work this out. We were totally wrong. He, again and again and again. And so I had to figure out, okay, how do I really love this guy? He had a kid. He was living with a girl, had a kid, really messed up. He was in the hospital for months. And um, my mom and I were the ones that spoke at his, his sentencing hearing. And— um, before that and during that, we just try to figure out, what do you— see? You know, there's a part of me that wanted him to be devoured by his own guilt. 
You know, he's 19, he'd live a screwed up life. You know, he didn't go to college, didn't really finish school, didn't really work hard, just kind of screwed around and made, had made a kid. I mean, just, he's a mess. And I could have I pressed that. Um, and the contrast between my dad's life and his life is so great, you know. But instead, my mom and I got together and we figured out, how do we— So, I, I mean, I wrote him a long letter about how um, it was our job to forgive him. And, um, and as best as I could, I did. And that I wanted him to have a good life. I didn't want him to live for my dad. I wanted him to live for God. Like, I wanted him to have the life he was meant to have. And I, I wanted him to get beyond this. I wanted this to ennoble him. And I wanted him to be set free— and so my mom and I, we just did the best we could. Because you don't have a lot of legal access to somebody who killed somebody in your family. You probably know that. Um, but it was heart-wrenching. But listen, the, the only reason I knew I could do this was because in the end, either his sins would be punished on the cross just like mine, or in condemnation from a righteous God who when he would do this, it would be marvelous in my eyes just as marvelous as when he redeems someone who comes to repentance. And if, listen, if we can't, if we can't become comfortable with the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of judgment, we don't believe the gospel yet. You can't put that on hold and get by it. God's judgment and condemnation of unrepentant sin is one of his glories that is marvelous. And the fact that he only executes it when nothing else will work is part of the glory of it. That he will only do it when he is forced to it by the being that will not acknowledge his glory. That's part of the glory of it. Because he only does it at the right time, in the right way, in the right proportion. But if we don't recognize that when God makes the thrown away stone the capstone, when God makes the thrown away dead son the new tenant, that that's part of his glory, and that when he came in and wiped out the wicked tenants was also part of his glory, we will eventually slide away from Christian faith. Because it, there, will be, there will be this illogic in it that never really makes sense and will always nod at us. You, you can't get rid of it because the cross had to happen for a real reason. Okay, I'm just out of time. Thrilling ending. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. That capstone is Jesus. And he's building a new temple on the basis of that capstone of those who believe, it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. A nation of kings and priests, a, a, a temple of living stones that is the church. And you are invited to be part of it. Doesn't matter how bad a tenant you've been. Doesn't matter. That's why he sends many servants. And even lastly, his son, so that we have many, many, many chances to reconcile with him, receive his love, and to accept what he's offered us. And if we do, we will become part of the new temple, the new building that he's building out of his great capstone, and we will be part of the new tenants of a new garden 
that its beauty will satisfy us forever. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your, your good truths. We recognize that there are some things about you that you love because they're right and good that we are uncomfortable with. And we pray that you'd forgive our limited vision. And we would pray that you would, we would, you would forgive us for how we handle some of these things. We pray, Father, that um, the doctrine of your judgment would make us more humble people, less self-righteous, less bigoted, more loving towards our enemies, more capable of showing genuine love towards those who are clinging to their role of unrepentant tenant. We pray that you'd make us the servants you send, willing to bear beatings and even killings, that we would continually invite and invite and invite and invite and invite all to the new, to the new temple and the new garden. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.